Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman, Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum, recording from New York for the second time today. And I'm Eli Koaz, Communications Director, recording from... Evan, where am I? You are in Vancouver, British Columbia, not to be confused with Vancouver, Washington. I am. I am. Correct. This will be our second episode today. You've heard of two podcasts Tuesday. This is three podcasts Thursday, as in we have two new episodes, and you can listen to one of our older ones as your third to show your support for Israel Policy Pod. What are we talking about today, Eli? Well, as much as I want to talk about Nauru, um, recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital... Uh, the, I, I would say the, that's the biggest shakeup in international politics I mean, this year. I mean, Nauru is, I mean, I think the world's least visited country is that in terms of tourism, the teeny island in uh, in the Pacific. They probably have um, a high tourist to local ratio. I'm sure, but I'm just seeing like headlines that it's the world's least visited country. I don't know if that's if that's accurate, but it's definitely... You know about the world's anti-Nauru bias at the UN, the Human Rights Council, so I don't know if I would trust those statistics. So, I mean, Nauru, we're talking about a population of roughly 12,000, and can you can you guess? I mean, I have a list here of the ten least uh, visited countries in the world. Well, who who published this? Who published this list? Who published this list? UNRWA. That sounds like something that they would say. They would want to smear a country that recognizes Jerusalem as having a low population. Let me just give you. Uh, let's just do the. I mean, we have big countries here that have Tuvalu at number three in terms of the least visited with two thousand visitors. Number two, Somalia. 400 visitors, you know, I mean, all the civil wars there and uh, pirates and so and so, it's not a country that is particularly in demand. And at number one, the least visited country in the world, Nauru, 160 visitors. Now, the source here is the UNTWO, which is, um, which is, I think, the United Nations body for tourism. That, so that, that means that there's about one... One tourist for every seventy-five Nauruans. In any case, let's get let's get on with the show. Let's talk about elections. Obviously, again, the biggest political news out of Israel this week is Nauru's uh, recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. But the second and third and fourth biggest news items we have Netanyahu's deal with the Zehut Party. We have Amir Peretz's mustache and the Labor Party's late-stage campaign, or lack thereof, mustache. I didn't want to spoil the ending, but yeah, I'm sure people have seen the news by now. And then Benny Gantz and Avigdor Lieberman last week concluding a vote-sharing agreement. And then we'll have a look at the polls. So let's start with Zehut. What's the deal with that, Eli? So, yeah, I mean, Zehut was a party that kind of um, has been around for a few years. Uh, Moshe Feiglin, who was a far-right Likud MK, um, started uh, a party that was... Mostly, it was kind of based on his extreme extremist agenda, but he disguised it um, both by putting uh, marijuana legalization at the forefront, especially in the last election campaign, and also fo- focusing on um, very libertarian uh, economic policies um, to tempt, uh, especially focusing on young Israelis, to ways to... Uh, to cut down on taxes and to um, improve the the cost of living, um, and there was a lot of talk, obviously, in the last election of him being the surprise, 
And I think at the end, the surprise was that his party uh, failed to cross the threshold by quite a bit. Um, in this campaign, um, Zeud, um has kind of had a, uh, a funny uh, turn. I mean, Fagelin announced that he would, he, he would focus on right-wing voters and the party was right, as opposed to kind of trying to tread the line between not belonging to one camp or another. Right, because in the last, ele- in the last election, it seemed like, and again, they ended up falling below the threshold and sort of not meeting the expectations that had been set out for them, but it looked like initially they were going to kind of attract voters from this secular hipster crowd, people you wouldn't think about as being right-wing voters. Exactly, yeah, and I, I think they probably got a few of those votes in the last election, but not enough to make a significant difference. And another thing which um, kind of pushed uh, Moshe Feiglin, uh, the party leader, to uh, this announcement, which we'll talk about in a second, about uh, supporting uh, Netanyahu and withdrawing their bid for um, the 22nd Knesset, um, is obviously the fact that if you were uh, in Israel during the last campaign, you could see Zeud billboards and all ads all over the place. Um, the party spent a ton of money on uh, their campaign and money that they really didn't have, it seems. And so part of this arrangement is that the Likud um, will cover uh, their debts. Now, there are a lot of questions arising about the legality of, of such an arrangement, um, but that's the, that's the situation. Um, so in a joint press conference today, uh, Feiglin and Netanyahu together, um, they were once together, obviously, there were rivals within the Likud, but Feiglin uh, talked about his support uh, for uh, uh, Netanyahu and how they would not, not be running, and Netanyahu, in return, said that he would adopt the Zeut uh, ideals, which are the same as the Likud, he said. Uh, he'd advance... It's Likud plus marijuana. Yeah, he'd advance medical cannabis. He'd promised... Uh, uh, Feiglin, what seems to be a, a ministerial post of some sort, um, and so that's that's the situation. I think that there are going to be some serious questions raised about the legality of this. Of course, Netanyahu is in such a deep hole, so maybe he thinks it's so bad, why not just dig it deeper if it means he can stay in the prime minister's office a little longer, because this really reeks of something not legal, the lawyer for Yisrael Beitenu, or their, their legal advisor, rather, Eitan Haberman, who was previously uh, the counsel for the Likud party, said that this could amount to fraud and bribery, which is probably something uh, he knows a little bit about from being in Yisrael Beitenu and in Likud. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, of course. And obviously, we talked about, we, we talked about, I mean, in previous podcasts, we talked a lot about Netanyahu and the importance of him to not have any wasted votes on the right. See, the, the goal here is that he doesn't want Zehut to fall below the threshold. And, you know, that would be if they're attracting right wing voters, those would be right wing votes that aren't going to go to the Likud that might otherwise have gone there. And, and Zehut did attract right wing votes in the last election. I mean, I think if you look at, uh, I was just looking at Ariel and Zehut is the fourth largest party there, which is not not for nothing. It's not a huge chunk of the vote, but it's not insignificant either. And yeah, so th- this there's a clear re- there's a clear reason that Netanyahu's doing this. 
so yeah, I think uh, there was an understanding by Moshe Feglin that that he had a very little chance to cross uh, the threshold. Uh, I don't think there was one poll so far in this election cycle that that had his party over that 3.25 percent mark. So I think this decision really um, made like it made sense for both for for both parties. Um, there's obviously questions, as you mentioned, about the legality of it. Um, but it will be interesting to see what kind of boost this gives the Likud um, come September 17th, because I don't think it's going to be that that number that we saw in uh, the April elections will just move over to the Likud. We'll have to see. Uh, maybe it's 50,000 votes. Maybe it's 40,000 votes. But definitely, I think the best case scenario for Likud here is that maybe this deal yields them one additional seat. Maybe. Sure, I think that's about right. But I mean, the main... Um, this is part of Netanyahu's mission to be able to form a 61-seat uh, coalition that uh, involves only the ultra-Orthodox parties and the right-wing uh, list of Yemina, which is led by Ayel Chaked, a coalition that would agree to give him immunity from all the legal proceedings against him. So we'll see, we'll follow closely to see if he's able to, to accomplish that. So that's the right-wing goal. Let's take a look at the center and the left. Amir Peretz, the leader of the Labor Party, now Labor Gesher, running a joint ticket with Orly Levy Abikasis, uh, shaved his mustache of 40 years. 40 years? Is that it's a 40 years? I thought he was born with a mustache. I'm sorry. I just was not. I, I really did. Did you read that in Yisrael Hayom? No, it's just a, a, a suspicion I've had for a long time about Amir Peretz and his mustache. But his mustache is no more. It is no more, and it, it it's not for nothing that we're talking about it here in the context of the elections, because it wasn't like he just shaved his mustache as a fashion statement. This was actually a little bit of a campaign ploy. It was so that he could say, read my lips, I won't sit with Netanyahu. And that was because kind of, his mustache was hiding his lips, and it right. wasn't clear when he said it with his mustache. And I think that just goes to show how unfunny the joke is, because Eli had to explain it. And, you know, if you need a joke to be explained, it's not funny. This is, a, I think there's a question of whether this will have that big of an effect. Uh, let's go into the context of what's going on. There had been rumors circulating that Amir Peretz would sit with Netanyahu in exchange for being appointed president after Reuven Rivlin's term is up. Amir Peretz, longtime politician, um, he would be someone who would theoretically make sense for the role of president of Israel. These rumors had been circulating through a number of channels. I know that Avigdor Lieberman had kind of perpetuated some of these rumors. And also, I mean, especially the Democratic Union who are fighting for, for votes. Right. Um, for, fighting for those votes. And also they're saying that uh, this is part of Amir Peretz. He, he campaigned to be labor leader on the fact that he would um, make... Uh, tried to unite the left, and he ended up going with a party that's definitely not in the left, considered center-center-right. He's not joining, obviously, the Democratic Union. That deadline has passed, and throughout the lead-up to it, he seemed reluctant to consider joining up with Meretz and Barak's Israel Democratic Party, which again now are the Democratic Union. So Peretz went to television to try to uh, kind of cast those rumors aside, 
whether or not you choose to believe them, the people who are circulating them each have their own reasons to want people to believe that Peretz would sit with Netanyahu, the Democratic Union, as you mentioned, Eli, to try to attract other left-wing votes that might otherwise go to the Labor Party and a Victor Lieberman. It hurts confidence in the traditional left wing and furthers Lieberman's goal of getting a unity government with Kaholavan and Likud. And so uh, at the end of the show, when we get uh, to the polls, we'll see that how how uh, this Labour Gesher party is actually doing, I think, uh, uh, better than people um, expected. That's setting a pretty low bar. For sure, but I don't think uh, many people, the people were talking about them barely being above the threshold, and it seems uh, now that the Democratic Union are actually uh, in a greater danger of falling under the threshold than, than Labour Gesher. So we'll check that out when we see the polls. And now we have one last major development that could impact things, which is this vote-sharing agreement that was reached um, about a week and a half ago between Avigdor Lieberman and Benny Gantz. A vote-sharing agreement essentially shares excess votes between two parties. Seats in the Knesset are apportioned according to the segment of the vote that each party gets, and you can't get half a seat. So if you had uh, votes that would equal half of what's needed to get a seat, then you just don't have those counted towards getting a seat. So to avoid so-called wasting of votes, parties will enter into these vote-sharing agreements where the party in the agreement that is closer to getting a, a, a whole seat, so say Kaholavan got what amounts to 34 and three-quarters seats, and uh, Yisrael Beitenu gets 10 and a quarter seats worth of votes, then that quarter of a seat uh, worth of votes from Yisrael Beitenu would go to Kacholavan and give them a whole other seat, or vice versa. If Kacholavan it were 34 and a quarter seats worth of votes, and uh, Yisrael Beitenu 10 and three quarters, that's how that would work. But it's not just the math here that matters, it's the symbolic importance of an agreement between Kachol Lavan and Yisrael Beitenu. Yeah, and usually parties that share common, uh, maybe ideology, goals, are the ones that make these agreements. If you look at, I mean, the two ultra-Orthodox parties have an agreement. They could have their agreement with Ayala Shaked Ziamina. I think Democratic um, Union and Labor, for all the, uh, the controversy and a little bit of competition we were just talking about it, I believe they also have a vote-sharing agreement this time around. Ex- exactly. So, I mean, all it uh, kind of played out that Kaholan and Israel Beitenu were kind of meant for each other. They also didn't really have any other options. So, I mean, it, it, it doesn't mean that they're, it's significant, but it doesn't mean that they agree on every issue or But it or displays a certain like level of confidence in the other party because essentially you are agreeing that in all likelihood one of these parties is going to give some of its voters' contribution to the national vote, to the other party. Some people who vote Kachol Lavan are effectively going to vote Yisrael Beitenu or vice versa. It, it does, and it's completely in line with what uh, Lieberman says that he wants to do, which is impose a unity government on on, on Israel. Um, and we also have situations where, I mean, I mean, Arab parties have even refused to sign in the last election. They refused, it was Hadash Ta'al that refused to sign an agreement with Meretz, which is... Um, so you can see that parties there are, and that's just a, I mean, it's a decision that is just sacrificing uh, votes. 
Right. And although that also brings up an important case that it's not mandatory that a party have a vote sharing agreement. So you mentioned the Arab parties and the joint list this time around is not going to have a vote sharing agreement with anyone. Last time around, actually, Kakhal Levan didn't have a vote sharing agreement with anyone. All the other parties had already paired off. So um, again, Lieberman is trying to diffuse the importance of it because it plays into Netanyahu's hands of trying to portray Lieberman as left-wing. Of course, Lieberman is not left-wing and Kachol Levan are not left-wing either, but it's much easier for Netanyahu to spin Kachol Levan as left-wing and then Lieberman by proxy if they have a formal agreement. So Lieberman has an interest in diffusing that. And of course, Netanyahu was in Batyam the other day speaking to what would be Lieberman's traditional base of Russian-speaking voters and trying to remind them that they should support Likud and not what he described as the left-wing Yisrael Beitenu party, which sounds like an oxymoron because it is. And you know, he, he compared Lieberman to Ayman Oda, the leader of the communist Khadash party and the, the joint list of Arab parties, which of course is a comparison that I would imagine Lieberman and Ayman Oda both don't find flattering. That's where things stand with that. Let's take a look at the polls. So let's take a look uh, at, at the polls. Um, we haven't had as many polls during this election cycle. Um, there's uh, definitely a, a poll slash election fatigue in Israel. Um, a lot of Israelis on finishing up their summer vacations. Um, so I'm sure we'll see more in the next two weeks with just under three weeks to go. But so this poll, the, the last one done by, by, by Channel 11, the National Broadcasting Authority, has Likud at 32 seats, Kaholaban at 31 seats. So I mean, I think we can, there's still a really a huge gap between the two big parties. I think Kaholaban need to be happy with where they're at. Um, I mean, we've had, we haven't seen Benny Gantt speak a lot. When we have seen him talk, it hasn't been, it hasn't been great. And I think that that's an understatement. After Kaholavan, we have the, the joint list of the air parties at 11 seats. Then we have Ayala Chaked's Yemina, which is at 10 seats in this poll. One seat below, we have Avigdor Lieberman's Israel Beitenu at nine, and that's pretty low for them in this election cycle. They've been at 10 and 11 in most polls before. Then we have Labour Gesher, Amir Peretz without the mustache, and Orly Lebebekasis at seven seats. We have both ultra-Orthodox parties united toward Judaism and Shas at seven seats. Then we have the Democratic Union at six seats. Those are the only parties pulling above the threshold. I think polls like this, by the way, underscore the need to look at this election not through the lens of the traditional blocks, because you're talking about, for example, the joint list of Arab parties as the third largest list, that's potentially 11 seats that aren't going to go to anyone. They're certainly not going to go to Netanyahu, but they're probably not going to go to the center-left either. Ayman Oda said recently in an interview with Yedi Odachronot that he would be willing under certain conditions to actually sit with Benny Gantz in government, which was significant. But even though he leads the whole joint list, he's really only representing his Khadash party, which will probably be three or four people. So that's uh, essentially seats that aren't going to go to anyone. Yisrael Beitenu, traditionally part of the right-wing bloc, now pushing a unity government. So you have to count that differently. So uh, there's really a lot at play here. It's a little less straightforward to look at than maybe previous elections. Yeah, you're, that's right. There is. Um, um, what I'm looking for in these polls is, does, does Netanyahu have a route to coalition without without Lieberman? And there's been almost, I think there's there hasn't even been one poll that, that has had that 
um, situation play out here. Let me just do the, the, the quick math he has. Yeah, he, he's at 56 seats without, and that, that's without Lieberman. Uh, that's him, Yamina, and the ultra-Orthodox parties. So he'll need to find, and that's why this Fagelin agreement, um, which we spoke about earlier, is super important. In this poll, this is before the Fagelin announcement, Fagelin garnered 2.3% of, of the vote. Um, and so that could make a difference to get him closer to 58, uh, 59. Again, that's that's assuming that all the Zaud voters fall into that right-wing camp. And the other big question here is you have Otsma Yehudit, the Kahanist party, 1.7% in this poll. Can he get them to support Likud? And maybe that gives him 60, 61. So these are things... It's also important to take all of these polls with a grain of salt and understand that there could be some pretty significant variations. I mean, each of these polls probably has about a 3 to 4% margin of error. I'm looking at one poll from early April, right before the last election, and it has blue and white at only 29 seats. It has Likud at 27, which we both know there are some pretty significant differences there, and that would have really altered the way the last election turned out. So this can give you kind of a general sense for how things will look. There aren't going to be any huge surprises towards the top. We know that the joint list is going to cross the threshold. We certainly know that Kaholavan and Likud are going to cross the threshold. I think it's the question of how do maybe three or four seats end up playing out? Yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly right. And so we'll follow in the weeks uh, to come to see where, where the polls are at and what, what's happening with uh, Israeli elections. And you can follow all of that on our elections resource, the 120 Project. We're also going to be having a lot of post-elections programming that are coming to major cities across the United States. Uh, but f before we do that, Israel Policy Forum is also making its entry into the Atlanta community on Thursday, September 5th. Then we have the elections on September 17th, which, again, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know about. And just two days after that, September 19th, we're going to be doing events in New York, Chicago, and Washington. And then the following Monday, September 23rd, we have elections events in Los Angeles and in Boston. So if you're in any of those cities or nearby, I'll actually be at the New York one. Evan, what about any, what about events for our listeners in Nauru? Will we have any of those? As far as our listeners in Nauru go, I think that's going to be an underserved community. But I have heard murmurs that there's going to be an IPF Atid chapter starting there. I actually don't know if they have chapter status yet. But you can maybe look out for some small events coming up there, uh, maybe a happy hour or a discussion about the election coming up in Nauru. And if you're just visiting Nauru, you can join uh, 75 other Nauruans uh, because there is that ratio of one tourist to every 75 Nauru locals. And so we're looking forward to seeing you at our programs in September, whether you're in Atlanta, whether you're in New York or Los Angeles or Nauru or Batyam or anywhere in between. And we hope to catch you next time on Israel Policy Pod. <laughs>